All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckadelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. This is it. Today, uh, I talked to Moshe Kasher. Now, this guy, I've known him a long time. He's been on the show several times. I met him way back in San Francisco where he he opened for me or featured for me, and he, he was frightening. And I think I bring that up every time I talk to him. Uh, he's been on the show, like, a lot. A couple of live episodes, uh, as well as talks on episode 97 and episode 803. He co-hosts the Endless Honeymoon podcast with his wife, Natasha Legero. He just wrote a book, Subculture Vulture, a memoir in six scenes. He's one of these guys that I, th- I feel like I've watched grow up. We're at that point now where obviously we're having a few repeat guests. Most of them are comics. But he really, I've watched this guy grow up. And I guess on some level, he's watched me change. I don't know. I think I hold steady in the, in the, in the view of most people. I think they see me go through different you know, moods that could last anywhere from a week to a number of years. But uh, I, I think in, in the eyes of, of a lot of people, I don't change much other than age. But who the fuck knows? But this guy, I know I've seen him change. There's a period there he just, he looked different. Now he's a grown man. He's got a child. He's got a life. I go to his Hanukkah party. It's very nice. But we get into a conversation about this, about changing, about identity, about what you hold on to. What are your choices? What choices do you make? I mean, I don't know. I, I, think, I think about myself more than necessary. I would say that's a diplomatic way of saying that I'm not self-obsessed, but highly self-aware. And the only time I'm not is when I'm talking. When I'm talking or playing guitar but like, even if I'm watching music or a TV show or listening to music, my, my gears are, are just spinning, man. All the time, wheels, not gears. Gears are grinding. They're not grinding because that, that mean the gears are humming along, the wheels are spinning. People, I'm in San Diego at the Observatory North Park this Saturday, day after tomorrow, January 27th, for two shows. It's a big, weird place. There's tickets available for both shows. The turnouts aren't bad, but there's still tickets available. The Castro Theater in San Francisco is sold out on February 3rd. Portland, Maine, I'm at the State Theater on Thursday, March 7th. Medford, Massachusetts at the Chevalier Theater on Friday, March 8th. Providence, Rhode Island at the Strand Theater on Saturday, March 9th. Terrytown, New York at the Terrytown Music Hall on Sunday, March 10th. Atlanta, Georgia, I'm at the Buckhead Theater on Friday, March 22nd. Madison, Wisconsin at the Barrymore Theater on Wednesday, April 3rd. Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Turner Hall Ballroom on Thursday, April 4th. Chicago at the Vic on Friday, April 5th. Minneapolis, I'm at the Pantages Theater on Saturday, April 6th. I'll be in Austin, Texas at the Paramount Theater on Thursday, April 18th as part of the Moon Tower Comedy Festival. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour. For tickets. Yeah, plugging along. Everything is okay. Um, there's some interesting thoughts, interesting questions for the uh, bonus episode, the Ask Mark Anything that's up now. Got me thinking. Someone asked about my parents. 
you know, how did I find resolution with my parents? How do you find resolution with yourself? That's the big, that's the big challenge. I mean, letting your parents off the hook and then owning, you know, whatever your expectations are of them as you get older, you'll find that many of the expectations are very young, very childlike. And they're, you know, that ship has sailed. They're not going to show up and be good parents. My parents are in their 80s for fuck's sake. It's not even a matter of bad or good parenting. It's just whatever you're expecting, those are very childish needs. Uh, not saying they're, they were bad needs. They were probably appropriate from when you were a kid, but you get older, they're just, they're just in there and they, they, they just cause fire. All they do is cause fire, resentment, anger, disappointment, shame, grief, all of it. So at some point, you got to let them off the hook. I don't know how it happens. For me, it just happened. You know, they got old and, you know, I don't know. I became more insulated in myself. And I just thought that was a good question. Because as I talked to Moshe today about identity, you scramble, man. I mean, you know, some people, and this isn't a complaint, but it's a very odd thing as I get older and I wrestle with some of the same things that I've always wrestled with is that because of whatever I grew up in, whatever world I grew up in emotionally, because of my parents' fundamental inability to uh, really uh, sort of do certain parenting things, like be nurturing, supportive, encouraging, uh, help develop a, a grounded sense of self in a child me or my bro. You know, because of that, you're kind of left to kind of build it on your own. There you go. Sorry, you're still nebulous in your identity as a unique being and yourself is kind of amoebic, but uh, you're uh, 15 now. So go out and try to kind of build a fence around that amoebic, boundaryless ooze you call your heart and your needs, and, and see what you come up with. Try to build some character out of that jellyfish-like sense of self we gave you. And that's the, uh, that becomes the project. That is the life project. Try things on, try shoes on, try hats on, different shirts. You pick uh, people that you idolize, movie stars, writers, comedians. Maybe try their hat on, maybe get their glasses, maybe get their pants or something that looks like their pants. Go out into the world. Go out into the world with your experiment and see if it sticks. No one notices, really, unless you get the exact same haircut as the lead singer from The Knack or something. Or diet red because somebody else, whatever. I went through so many outfits as a, I don't think I was conscious of it, but I was sort of like, maybe this will define who I am. I'll, I'll try this on, see how that goes. Nope, same guy, still a little insecure, no real concrete sense of self, but these shoes are good. And then, you know, you go through relationships with that, just being a ball of you know, random needs, aggravation, disappointment, put that on the other person. And then you, you become that guy, the reactive guy. And then you, you choose tasks, jobs to find yourself. I was, a, you know, I think early on, I was an old Jewish man in my late teens through my early twenties, maybe 
And then, uh, you know, then, you know, you try to be, you buy some boots, you're a cowboy maybe. I was a grill cook in high school. I was pretty locked into that. Once I learned how to, you know, kind of fold my apron in half and wear it around my waist like that, like a pro, like a, I was mentored by a guy who spent his life working in restaurants. I'm like, this will be the, this is who I am. I'm the guy with the spatula. I'm the spatula guy. Different zones of comedy, different, you know, how people interact with you sometimes defines it, but there's still a good part of me. And I think some of you know this from listening to me that, you know, needs to be connected uh, in, in a very immediate fashion to whoever I'm talking to. And that's who I am. But all the, a lot of that stuff is faded away. I know what's going on inside of me. I know the sad a sort of a fragile, vulnerable inner core of me. I sit with that guy on the couch and I cry at, uh, at movies and I, and I cry when I watch reels on Instagram. That's that guy. He's, you know, he's, he's my emotional engine, that guy. But usually I keep him pretty well locked away. You know, he's my buddy. It's got, he's not for, I, I'm not going to you know, share him with everybody. So I know. And I also know all the manifestations of me that have built out from that little thing's needs. It's like, it's like that joke I wrote. What was that in? End Times Fun. The monster I built to protect the child inside of me is hard to manage. You know, there's a spectrum of that. And sometimes it's, uh, it's not a bad thing. But... Uh, I, I, I used to think about all that time. I used to think about that all the time, but I don't think it's everyone's thought pattern, you know, that, that the personality is just an elaborate defense mechanism. Kind of is. So listen, you guys, I have some sad news for those of you. What's sad news for anybody? A friend of mine and a comic, as well as a writer named Tom Johnson, uh, died last week. And he was a, one of the funniest People I ever met in my life, to be honest with you. Um, I knew him a little bit as a comic way back, but he was a writer mostly for a lot of television stuff. He wrote for roasts, award shows, late night talk shows. He co-created the Jeselnik Offensive and was the head writer of that show. Um, but, you know, I knew him back when he, he did comedy briefly, but then he was, he was actually... Uh, he was at the Comedy Cellar before me, and then he became the writer for The Daily Show. This is the pre-John Stewart incarnation of The Daily Show. And that's sort of how he came to Air America, which is where I, you know, he started Air America with me, but Liz Winstead, who was at The Daily Show, the original Daily Show, pulled Tom in as a writer, and that's where we re-met. And the thing was, he, he was fucking hilarious like inspired as a writer, but also as a performer. And he wrote so many amazing bits for us that we did on the radio. So yeah, just I, this, he wrote for Geraldo, Greg Geraldo a lot, a couple of, uh, he was on his shows. Um, good friends with Geraldo. Tom also had his own struggles, but don't we all, but he had this character uh, that we used to use on Air America radio on morning sedition, my show. He had a character who would call into the show regularly. It was this, um, it was an ineffectual liberal activist. He saw himself in the mold of a Latin revolutionary and he called himself Pendejo without knowing what that meant. His organization always went by some convoluted name before he realized 
it was an acronym for something like balls or gals or poodle. Uh, <laughs> it was really fucking hilarious. And we're doing this show at six in the morning till nine in the morning. And to have this kind of comedy at that time, you're already a little punchy, a little giddy. It was just spectacular. And this is, um, I'll play, I'm going to play some for you. This is one of our favorite calls from Tom. He's calling in to talk to me and my co-host, Mark Riley, on Morning Sedition, as I said, which was our show, with Chris Lopresto uh, as the board up on the, on the levers, on the controls, on the knobs. Kay Lopresto, who does that show with Brendan in our bonus material on Fridays. But this is, a, this is Tom calling in as, uh, as Pendejo. Uh, the yelling guy, the guy from uh, Poodle. Or the balls, I forget. Anyway. Oh, yeah, that guy. He's on all line right. one. Okay, all right, put him through. Hey, man, what's going on? So uh, so how's that uh, thing you're working on going? You mean the revolution? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how's the, uh, how's the revolution going? Did you guys come up with a uh, better name yet? I'll admit we have made some unfortunate mistakes in the naming of our group in the past. We are no longer known as Nambla, Poodle, Gals, or Balls. We are now called the Tactical Elite and Battle Action Group. Okay, so you're going with Teabag. Teabag, Mark. <laughs> we will go out across the land, find the evil, slanderous conservatives where they live, and teabag them into submission. <laughs> they will feel one thing above all others, a stern and ferocious uh, all right. Well, I, uh, I think there's, this is something you're going to have to find out on your own, buddy. But uh, make sure you send me one of those T-shirts before you burn them, okay? So, uh, so, so, so last week, your group had a big, scary, revolutionary brunch. Uh, how'd that go? The turnout at our rally... Brunch. Rally was disappointing, to say the least. Well, I'm sorry. It was me, my Shih Tzu stompers, uh -huh. who cannot be left alone, my girlfriend, who, while not actually there, as she had a shift at Crabtree and Evelyn, but assured me she would join the rally on conference call, and the Johnsons had to leave early, as their toddler Ben is an albino. So naturally, the outdoor table irritated his corneas. But the Revolutionary Council took a vote. <laughs> you mean you and you and Stompers? Yes, me and Stompers. Uh, oh yeah. And we decided that what Teabag needs more than anything is a recruiting drive. Ah, recruiting drive. Since it's just you and Stompers, you decided, hey, maybe some people would help kick this revolution into high gear, huh? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. So, so where'd you start the recruiting drive? My apartment complex, <laughs> Chantilly by the Lake. <laughs> Stompers and I took the elevator to the top floor and vowed to teabag our way to the very bottom. So, how many floors is that, man? Four. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, how many apartments would you say are in the complex? As many as 16, I think. So, uh, how many recruits did your liberal action group make? Well, I think the hour I chose may not have been the best. I found that at 11.30 a.m., most of my potential recruits were at work. Oh, so you mean uh, all of them were at work. No, Mark, it might surprise you to learn I had a very successful recruiting day. Heed the names of my new lieutenants that shall haunt the dreams of the right wing. Rosa, the cleaning lady, and Ethan, a seventh grader who was homesick that day but would not open the door all the way. But even through that narrow slot, I managed to teabag him. <laughs> 
Well, well, you must be very proud of yourself, man. Well, while the police are on their our way over to you, <laughs> why don't you tell me a little bit about the uh, the that that badass revolutionary Rosa? Rosa? Yeah. She spoke no English, but I could see in her the burning spirit of Che. So Stompers and I, and Rosa, and Ethan, as soon as he asks his parents, will begin our assault on the neocons. To war, Mark! To war! <laughs> okay, so it's, so it's you and Rosa, a 12-year-old boy and a little dog. Buddy, that's not a revolution. That's the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> oh, the story of Teabag will not be a story for children, I can assure you. You can say that again. <laughs> Man, I can't take it anymore. I can't let you do this any longer. All right, listen, buddy. Are you in front of a computer right now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, type type in the word teabag, all right, uh, into the Google image search bar. All right, go ahead. I'll wait. Okay. T-E-A-B-A-G. There. Let's... Oh, good sweet Lord! What have I done? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, boy. So there you have it. That was the guy from the Revolutionary Group, formerly known <laughs> as Teabag. Tom is survived by his wife, Rosie, and many friends and people who got to work with him who know what a smart and funny guy he was. I, I have very, I think about Tom, and I'm kind of laughing, and now I'm kind of sad. I'm kind of sad laughing. It was like that when he was alive, too, though. So, look, folks, um, come see me on the road. Things are okay. Cats are fine. Kids fine. Parents are okay. Uh, me and Moshe get into some shit here. Um, it's all very good. I don't know. There's something about... I was talking to Brendan about it um, before the show about really, you know, what... What it what what it was like at the beginning of of doing this show is that um, there are certain people that like me. I'm thinking out loud right now. I talk and think at the same time. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody does that. Sometimes they answer questions. Sometimes they they say things they already know. Tell stories. But like Moshe is sort of like me, and we're kind of thinking out loud on our feet, engaging. And that's sort of how this show developed. It, 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 that's If you listen to the first 100 to 200 shows, it was a lot of people that I could riff with. And over time, I think I learned how to kind of drive for that or, or try to pull that out of everybody. But this is like, this is one of those conversations. And it happened a lot with comics and it still happens with comics. And, and uh, sometimes I can feel it happen with people who aren't comics or people who aren't generally used to speaking like that freely, improvising, thinking out loud. But when you get into a jam with somebody like this, uh, it's great. Happened with Paul Giamatti the other day. I got John Oliver was in here the other day. I'll put that up later. That got going. It's just, uh, this, this is where it, it's kind of where it gets good, man. But this is me uh, talking to Moshe Kasher, his new book, Subculture Vulture, a memoir in six scenes, comes out next Tuesday, January 30th. You can pre-order it now wherever you get books. Here we go. Here we go. I was going to get a place in New York. Uh-huh. And it was going to take time to get it together, like probably longer than I wanted. And it was uh, it, it turned out to be... 
but whatever the case, I had this idea like, I'm going to get old in New York. Right. It's lively. Yeah. yeah. What a great place to die, just to walk around, engaged with the world. And then I don't know, that went away. Now I'm back on moving back to New Mexico where I grew up and getting a place. And That's so the opposite experience of being old. New Mexico old is like staring at a mountain. But it's also like, the real thought is though, like New York old is like, I'm going to be an engaged guy. I'm going to go to the symphony. I'm going to Lincoln Center. Right, right. I'm going to go enjoy some jazz. It's like, and then you got to ask yourself, have I ever been that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to be that guy all of a sudden? So you think you'll be sitting in an apartment in, in New, New York, York just with cats, wishing you were in New Mexico? Not not wishing, but just sort of wondering, like, do I? Can I call anybody? Are any of my friends doing anything? You know what I heard recently was that um, you know all the old people in the in the seventies and eighties moved to the the suburbs. Right, they, they weren't old then, uh, but there there was white flight, and people yeah. moved out to the suburbs, and that became. The, the way that became uh, like Long Island juice. Yeah, yeah, and and now um, nobody wants to live in suburbs anymore. It's become stigmatized. It's because no, it's boring. You know, suburban hell. Is that true? What do they want to go further out? They want to do country. Well, this was before the pandemic. Yeah, I don't know if you heard about the pandemic. But that was when the disease happened. That's when well, that, what they call a disease <laughs> happened. But I think we both know what really happened. The Chinese. That's right. That's what, thanks for bringing that up. Um, <laughs> But that the suburban suburban life became stigmatized, yeah. and 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 came the advent of things like Uber Eats and DoorDash and delivery to your door. Being Sorry. old in a in a in a urban center became incredibly easy, much much easier. Oh, I see. So now all of a sudden you have all these boomers that are now seventy and eighty years old moving back to the city. Well, no, they're moving to the the big city in the sky, the city of heaven. Dead. Dead and nobody wants to. There's there is a reckoning, a real estate reckoning coming. Instacart go to heaven. <laughs> you got to get Instacart Prime uh, to get to get it delivered <laughs> to heaven. But there's going to be all these houses, like a third of the houses in America that are going to be vacant and nobody in communities, no one wants to live in anymore. Because, well, that's just like cities, right? Well, old people all moved to the cities and started to love it. And we all saw that that you know what was previously a terrible neighborhood then became like a cool neighborhood and people wanted to move there. But then came the pandemic and uh, and and. and what? All, well, I think all the rules have kind of shifted a little bit because society's a, t- a tad bit more chaotic in, in urban centers. Well, I think that, I think what's, from what I can tell, people are just, depending on what they do, can work from anywhere if they're not in the service industry of some kind. Right. Or doing like those level of jobs. Um, but I don't know. Like, I'm, I just started thinking about my heroes growing up in New Mexico, like the professor, this guy Gus, you know, and he's a guy of books and things. And yeah. thinks, and there's like a fairly progressive art scene and stuff in New Mexico. The reason I turned on it was like I've been going back to visit my father, and I thought, well, what would I do here? You know, see if my high school friends are hanging out. But if you shift your, like, I can dotter around this fucking house all day and do whatever. I saw you doddering front when Just I now? pulled up. Yeah, you yeah. Were, well, I was putting some stuff in the bin. You were pre-doddering, I mean, right? But I mean, we're comics. I mean, you did the other thing. You have a child. And responsibilities, but I mean, we built our life on doddering. <laughs> well, that's one of the great be- blessings of this lifestyle, right? No boss, no alarm clock. I sure. always think about that. But you know, but if you're ambitious and you're busy and you're a worker, you there's no line between work and not working. You're doing something. Yeah, I, I guess the idea is like 
the New York old person is trying to squeeze like a sponge the last drops of life out, out of the experience of being alive. Right. And the New Mexico old person is trying to shift into a different dimension of life. I, yeah, I just yeah. want to stare the at a easier river. Easier transition. Yeah. But there's no, it's not looking at a river. You, you know, you <laughs> I can, thought that's what you do in New Mexico. No, I mean, it's pretty. It's so pretty. But I mean, but it, it's... It's the idea of like, you know, I think I'm a cultured person. I live in Los Angeles. Do I go to a museum? Once every two years. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. What? They're right there. Do I go to the fucking opera? Do I go to anything? And why, why would I do that in New York? I, got a, I know a guy at Lincoln Center, jazz at Lincoln Center. He'll get me in. I think that um, you're really going to hate this. But I, uh, I think that admitting to yourself that you don't really like jazz is part of the process of growing up. No, I like jazz. And I'm sure you do. I just had to admit it to myself. Like, you know what? I don't like jazz. I want to like jazz. I wish I was a person that liked jazz. Well, that's what's a weird thing because I've brought this up before, but I have a cousin who literally hears jazz and it makes her anxious. Yeah. But for me, it go, it's almost like Ritalin. I got uh-huh. no problem with jazz. I, it interfaces fine with me. I have a very hard time, you know, knowing the separate people. Like, I, like I, it's, it's too deep a rabbit hole. For me to identify all the players, but I, I do like listening to it. Classical? Sure. You like classical? No, I don't understand it. Yeah. I mean, I can sit and listen to it. And, I, you know, like I, I watched Maestro, you know, Jew, sure. Jew Conductor. They, that was a working title. Jew Conductor? Yeah, Jew yeah. Conductor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, in parentheses, The Nose. Yeah, <laughs> Jew Conductor, The Nose. Well, that was quite a choice. Yeah. The the orchestra the actual conducting scene uh, that was a brilliant scene that was quite it was what, there was many of them the the the, the one though you know in the in the oh. in the chamber where they're sweeping oh, through yeah, the hall yeah, 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 and yeah. he's he's doing his thing yeah. I was Bradley Cooper was definitely channeling oh yeah no he's a great actor shit. he's a great yeah. actor but what I'm finding with a lot of these movies that are like you know Oscar movies or whatever is that it's not that I love them as movies but like I didn't know that stuff. I'm learning things. It's Wikipedia. <laughs> like, the movie. like Oppenheimer, I'm like, I had no idea. Oppenheimer was definitely Wikipedia, the movie. Yeah. But I mean, it was good. I needed to know that. I, I didn't realize that. Like, it was you know, originally called Jew Scientist. Sure. And 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 Barbie was called Jew Doll. <laughs> That's right. Is Barbie Jewish? Yes. She couldn't be. She's totally Jewish. I have not met that Jew. The no, but she was invented by a Jew. Oh yeah. That's what I'm saying. We do the it little all. lady who made the Barbie. <laughs> who didn't look much like Barbie. No, didn't look like Barbie at all. <laughs> She's the one that unleashed it. Oh, so unleashed the, the feminine role model that either you think did amazing things for women or did horrible things for women. And and the other Jew unleashed the Fires of hell. Yeah, yeah. The Jew that created Barbie, you mean? <laughs> yeah, that and Oppenheimer. <laughs> they and should the have bomb. gotten together. Well, that was uh, the genius of the Barbenheimer thing. It's like, it's a Jewish thing. Uh-huh. Like, no one, I hadn't heard anyone, I hadn't heard anyone talk about it like that. I talked to Greta Gerwig about it. I said, it's like Jews. Yeah. But I don't know if that you know makes us look good or bad given the climate. <laughs> well, nothing, I mean, nothing makes us look good or bad given the, the climate. The cl- and the climate's always a little bit cloudy. Yeah, I've been on stage. I've been saying, uh, I've been saying, it's not a great time for Jews. But has it ever been? A hundred percent. Was there ever a time in history where Jews said, "Wow"? I'm trying to think. What an amazing time it is to be Jewish. Uh, let's see. Was there? You want to know in, in in certain neighborhoods? No, you know what's really f- maybe uh, in New York during the. This is not actually funny, but uh, but very dark, and it is in in the book. Is the reason that so many Jews perished in Poland in the Holocaust? Um, my family's all. Po- Are you Polish? Yeah. Uh, the reason we were there. Polish Russian. The reason that the Jews, uh, there were so many Jews living in Poland that. I know, I read this part. Yeah, go ahead. That they called, you know, uh, they called Lublin Little Jerusalem. Yeah. Is because 300 or 400 years before that, yeah. 
King Casimir of Poland in the something century yep. told was looking around at uh, European uh, proto anti semitism. You know, all, every Easter they'd r- r- round up some Jews and I don't know throw Middle them in Ages. A, yeah, uh-huh. like that time, and they would they would throw you know th- do like a parade with the town Jew for yeah. being a Christ killer and then toss him in a ditch or something yeah. like that. And he goes, "This is stupid. Everybody come to Poland. Right. Poland, we will welcome we will Jews. welcome Jewish minds and yeah. Jewish wealth and Jewish uh, uh-huh. culture. Come on, we're yeah. the safe space. Yeah, and that." Was, no. That's the reason everybody went to Poland. That's so that what, guy, did that guy have the long game? Or? <laughs> you think he set us up? Yeah. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> but it's so depressing. It's like even the place where they, there was a celebration like, yes, this is our spot, yeah. became the seat of our destruction, you know, 100, 200 years later. So no, no, and there's never been a bright and sunny time. Well, that, But what's interesting about the new book is that you wrote a fairly thorough memoir years ago. Yeah. Uh, about specifically growing up with deaf parents, mostly. Um, yeah, I wrote basically. Well, it's interesting to call it thorough because it ends like right before I turned sixteen. That first book, right? And and I guess the reason that the 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 reason I started thinking about this second book is I kept over the years having people ask me like, well, what happened next? What happened next? Yeah, you're still alive. What yeah. happened? And I had decidedly not written like a recovery memoir. It was a it was a memoir of my trials and tribulations of getting before going, he got sober because until the essentially the last image in the book it flashes forward a little bit yeah the, the old book that you graciously blurbed for me um is is all of me standing at a bart station 15 years old out of rehab for the last time not yeah. the first time it was it was my third rehab that i'd finally gotten out of at that point yeah and all my friends saying hey we're headed up i remember this moment really clearly we're headed up we're going to go to this bar there was a bar called barclays in oakland where i I don't know how, but they would serve us. Yeah. We were 50. There's always that one. I mean, this that wasn't a liquor bar. store where they would look the other way and give you a 40. This was a bar. And, and you just, just had kids at the counter. High yeah, chairs. you just <laughs> you amble up. Um, barkeep, I'll have an <laughs> ice cream sundae and a bourbon, please. And they said, we're going. Do you want to come? And I and I said, no, I, I think I have to go. I think I have to go. And I remember the image really I really remember this of all my friends walking one way up the street on College Avenue in yeah. Oakland and me walking alone the opposite direction. And that's where like kind of the rest of my life began is like walking yeah. alone. Were you like walking were you in your you know baggy rave clothes yet? No, no, this was oh. um this was pre um, no hat and baggy clothes. No, I had before this. You know, you know how you always make fun of me for like kind of being. I, I, I knew it was going to come up at some point, so I'll just bring it up. I'll supersede your uh, the roast, but which is when you first encountered me on yeah. stage. I I had this you scared um, me. I scared you. Yeah. You scared me. I, just, I was like, this guy's angry, and he's dressed in all these baggy elf clothes. <laughs> I'm literally currently wearing a pair of boots made in Finland that look like they're for elves, like real elves. Oh, like, I've had like Santa's like elves. Those are like a slipper. That's not great the, for all day long outside. The most comfortable boots I've ever worn. But v- those kind of Viva soles, boots. Those kind of soles, you know, they, I don't know. They're, they're bad for you? No, they're not bad for you, but it, they're not durable. Well, all right, go ahead. Anyway, yeah. you know what they You're help? wearing elf shoes well, now. No, they, what it. they help is a year round uh, in the toy workshop. Me and the other elves are able to fashion sleighs and tops. The, the, the Hasidic elves. <laughs> um, I was not a raver yet. This was my gangster years. Okay. Uh, my uh, When you're walking away from your friends. When I was walking away from my friends. I mean. Oakland. Mark, I had a southern accent. I, this is, I had never been to the south. I'm not a southern person. I have no family in the south. I had acquired. Was it a southern 
black accent? Oh yeah, it was a southern black accent. <laughs> but where'd you pick that up? Uh, in somewhere in Oakland, like some some too short tape or something like that. And yeah. It would come and go depending on who I was talking sure, to. Like sure. I'd be talking to my brother, yeah. and I'd be talking like a regular person. Yeah. And then a friend would call, and it'd be like, "Well, brother, you know, I think our plans are there." Just a second. Hello. Hell yeah. What's up, my man? <laughs> yeah, we chilling out here. All right, then. Peace. And I'd look at my brother, and he'd be like, "What the fuck just happened? Who is this?" And I'm like, "I'm just keeping it real, dog." It's yeah. like, "No, this is that's that is the." opposite of keeping it real so all of the things that you made fun of me about uh when we got to know each other yeah it's interesting because i had i had excised a, a lot of that kind of identity crisis stuff by the time i started doing stand-up and when i st- stood up on stage yeah it's like this little defense mechanism demon from the past would come out comedically, you know? Well, I feel what I felt like when you were telling me this is that, you know, that makes sense to me because you were kind of a raw nerve in my memory. Mm -hmm. Like it it seemed like you had gotten rid of all that other stuff. And now you were kind of aggravatingly dealing with whatever you were. Well, it was interesting to find it, meet me again on stage. You know, it's like I, you know, when you're new to new at stand up. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if you can think that far back, Mark. But That's very funny. You're new at stand up. Sure. <laughs> just, it was try, me and Mort Sahl. Just, just trying to give time. you a little. Yeah. <laughs> you had an electric guitar under your arm. He had a yeah. newspaper. Yeah, and and he got more popular than me. I was always mad at him for it. You know, Mort Sahl used to come around the Bay Area a I lot. Know, the Throckmorton. I, I can't. And, and everybody would always say, "I didn't know the guy." And we would look. It's it's a funny experience because when someone points at someone you're not familiar with and say, "That's a legend," then you go, "Okay," and you start. Sure. To, you go, "Legend over there." Yeah. But everybody always said he was kind of mean, right? I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I hate. T- I hate talking about him because I didn't like him. Right. I and don't, he was asshole to me. He was. I. He was pretty do- very much in his New Mexico doddering stage when I encountered mm-hmm. him at the Throckmorton. But yeah, I heard that was the rumor that he was not. He was not the warmest newspaper carrying comedian. No, in the world. I just. I had a problem with him. But nonetheless, so so you're saying that by the time you got to stand up, you had excised. A lot I, of these different yous. And, and then I and then I got on stage and, you know, you, you're one of the, the things that you do early on in stand up is yeah. you're, you're attempting to grab at things to be able to use them to go. Yeah. like how, how do I be funny? How do I perform? I how do I be me? And so this old non me me comes out, which I thought was I, I thought about you making fun of me because I never thought of myself as like. I had no consciousness of the fact that I was even doing that. I was just like using whatever tools were at my disposal. But it was funny that this kind of weakness from the past came up on stage and and for a while, and I still do it to some small extent on stage. Like I like playing with the, the... the interaction between the way I physically look now and like a slang term, do a or like hip hop stuff, pretending to be the yeah. guy that would know that you know. Especially now at my age, it's getting. But you, but you did come up. You were the guy that knows that stuff. I, what, it it is know. true. It's not an insincere part of I mean, my you're, life. You're a grown up, well dressed man now. But I mean, it's you know, it's what you were built. Well, I think that's what's interesting about this book because you've chosen, you know, these long essays. The book is a memoir built on, I guess, six essays. About what made you you, right? That's right. I mean, that was the plan. Like, which were the defining movements and factors in my life historically and and also just spiritually and pop culture-wise? And you kind of just broke them down that way and you put yourself together through this book. And I think, yeah, it's like like, um, what I thought a lot about is you look – when you get a little bit older, you look back and you realize, oh, there was a pattern here. There was a path. Like this was this was where I was headed. And, right. and while you're walking through it, it feels more like you know you're you're on a you're on an adventure, being sort of flung from thing to thing. Oh, so you think that when you look back on it, you're like, I was always going here. I don't believe in 
necessarily destiny in that way. I mean, yeah. I do believe in destiny really strongly, but only in hindsight. I, I, well, yeah, how else does it exist? I mean, in, in that it, I was being drawn in this one particular direction and it was always meant to be that I would be here. You believe that? I don't necessarily believe that. I believe it in a kind of metaphysical way that once yeah. you get to once you get to where you where you landed, you look back and go, wow, I see now this like brilliant path that I was walking. Well, you, well, you sort of have to, I mean, you know, or else... Oh, yeah, I guess you could look back and go, God, that sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at some point, you got to be like, I was meant to do this, because what's the alternative? Well, like, I think about, there's a moment in the book, like, I think about, I was on a semester abroad um, in Israel, oh. and um, and this was in the height of the Second Intifada, and the semester abroad got cut short. Yeah. And in college, I'd been studying... Uh, playwriting and and acting and i i wanted to be like Spal- i thought I, like i'll be eric bogosian i'll be sure. spalding gray but yeah. i i didn't know what any of it meant and then i went to new york uh because my semester got cut short i go i'll go to new york for the summer and, and have a good time yeah so i fly back and chelsea Peretti was there yeah and she had started doing stand-up i didn't i was not a guy were you a guy that, you knew her i knew chelsea from middle school oh, yeah. oh okay and, right. and she went to high school with my brother yeah and i'd seen her one person show in san francisco am i a guy who what who was always going to be a comedian, even before? Pretty much. You always worshipped them and looked at comics. and. Well, early on, I, I thought it was a pretty amazing thing to do, you know, and I started pretty pretty quickly right out of college Yeah, I and had, during college. I had almost no consciousness of what uh, that stand-up existed. Yeah. I mean, I knew that it existed, obviously. I'd seen Delirious, and my brother showed me Janine's uh, special, yeah. HBO special, and I thought, she seemed so cool. But I wasn't, um, I just, that wasn't in the cards. But I go to New York... And I and I see Chelsea, and she's like, I'm doing stand-up now. I'm like, what even kind of is that? And we go to, uh, she took me to a show at Luna Lounge that night. Sure. It was my first live stand-up show I ever saw. Downtown, and, yeah. And Patrice was there, yeah. and Sarah Silverman was there. And I remember watching them and going, like, what is, th-? I remember Patrice making fun of Michael J. Fox. Yeah. And I was just, I, I was just like, I, I didn't even know you could do a thing like that, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like it's a well, sick... you can't, Patrice can, but right, Patrice can. can. I'm just, the, the, but the mere idea of like throwing yeah. that kind of um, fuel at a, at something that seems sacred, I just had never considered it before, especially yeah. when I'm in this Eric Bogosian, Spalding sure, Gray, sure, like, yeah. oh, I'm del- delving into the yeah, psycho- yeah. psychological underpinnings. Well, for for years, I saw Eric as kind of a guy that just didn't have. The discipline to, or the or the guts to do comedy. Well, it's, it's really funny because I'm I was like a freshman in college looking and going, wow, cool. You well, know? it was cool, but like unlike Spalding, who was his own thing, I think Spalding's different. I don't think Spalding set out to do comedy. But when I watched Eric early on in Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, whatever, right. it was clear that they were bits. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think Spalding was doing this extended, weird kind of existential riffing. Uh, that was totally driven by his mind. But yeah, I, th- I thought that Eric was going for laughs. I, I really think it's funny that early in our conversation, you're like, I'm not a culture guy. I don't go to the museum. But you have a really keen analysis of the differences between Eric Bogosian and Spalding Gray's long-form monologues. Well, no, I mean, but I— You're I a pretty keep, cultured guy. I keep up with the art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I did go see art. I go, I go to New York. I go to Whitney all the time. I grew up with it. I'm not saying I'm, I'm some sort of lowbrow guy. I just, you know, I don't go as much as somebody— who like there's my my grandparents' neighbors? They you know, won the lottery and retired in D.C. And that guy was like at the opera. He was at the symphony. He was at the, you know people who live that life who just thrive on any kind of culture. Yeah, I, I'd like to be that guy, but I'm not. That's all I'm saying. That's like the lady I sat next to at the uh, Alex Edelman show. She was like 90, 99 years old. You want me to change the subject? <laughs> that whole story's bad already. Okay, so she was what? <laughs> Go ahead. 
forget it. <laughs> no, tell me. She was just like 99 years old, and she was telling me she goes to every single theater performance right. in Los Angeles. Right. And then she told me I really needed to check out the new Taylor Swift movie. She'd been eight times. Sure. So that that does, I mean, listen, I don't want to say the new Taylor Swift movie, but yeah. that does seem like an aspirational 99 years it's, old. Wait, look, well, because I think people retire, either you fucking surrender and die, or you do the things that you never got to do in your life. Yeah. And you just go do it compulsively. Why not go to every fucking theater show? I think actually the secret, Mark, I want to get back to Destiny, but the secret is to live, if you're going to go somewhere, go to go to Santa Fe, because then you can stare at the river, get in your, your so uh, old school pickup river. truck, and then drive to the theater performance it's a, it's all about living just yeah but that's like local santa fe theater I it's enough go to new mexico opera no i mean i could come back i could go anywhere i like i'm not a big theater guy i do like art i do like things i like them i'm a guy that's sort of like oh it's going to be aggravating how we where are we going to park but uh-huh. once i'm at a place whether it's a party a museum a performance once i'm inside i'm great i'm so glad we came uh-huh. but, but when i'm at home i'm like it's going to be a hassle Why so bother? i just have to right <clears throat> I get that. Yes, I get that. So destiny has brought. Oh, you destiny! Here. So I go to New York. I see Patrice and Sarah. I go, yeah. oh my god, this is it. Maybe I'll try that. Yeah. Or maybe that's the, the. Maybe that's the thing. I've been studying performance. I've been studying writing. I'll try that. And I said to Chelsea, oh, I'll do. I'll write ten minutes by the time she was coming to the Bay Area. This was in June, and she was coming to the Bay Area in August. What I go, year? Uh, two thousand two. And I wrote a bit, and she came to San Francisco because she's from there. Took me to an open mic. I did the open mic. I got some laughs, and I. That's that was the beginning of that, and yeah. now here I am, twenty years later. It's my living. I'm writing books. I m- I meet Natasha somewhere. Yeah. We get married. I yeah. have a kid. This right. is like my life. And I, and if if all, if so many different weird things hadn't taken place, right, I'd be a different guy. I wouldn't be on this podcast. I'd be sitting at a desk in somewhere in of course. In, in the Pacific sure. Northwest, a social worker with a different family or no family, or I'm dead in a ditch. Well, if you or, believe in the multiverse theory, you are. I'm doing all those things. Everything's happening for you. <laughs> In another in another um, universe, yeah. you're extremely annoyed with this interview right now. But in this universe, it feels it's like we're best. having a good time. It's the best. <laughs> that universe is right here. It's yeah. right next to us. <laughs> it could actually meld <laughs> yeah. at any point. At any the, point. the two universes could meet. Come together. It happens frequently. <laughs> I bet yeah. it does. Uh, <laughs> What's the worst uh, interview you've ever had, Mark? No, I'm just kidding. Ben Kingsley. Oh, yeah? Hands down. I don't want to talk about that guy. All right. But, like, so... You go through the revelation of AA, yeah, and and where that got you, and that kind of did something to your brain that stuck. Yeah, well, when I walked alone, I walked alone into an AA meeting, and it was lucky or unlucky or whatever. I know that fucking moment, man. Uh, yeah, that early sobriety thing where like you're just raw as fuck, and you just walk into these smoky, fucked up rooms, and then they just become to, they they start to make so much sense. Well, you know, I was terrified because <clears throat> it's weird. I had been in meetings already because I'd started my mom. rehab, yeah. My mom sent me to rehab when I was like 13. Yeah. And so they would force us to go to 12-step sure. meetings. On the, on the, in the van. In the van, <laughs> yeah. So we yeah. would take the van yeah. and we would go. Yeah. And so when I decided to do to ask for help, I already was sort of already physically there. But mentally, my whole orientation was that adults were the problem. I hated adults. Like I hated, I hated, everybody was always telling me what to do from my earliest memories. Like Oakland Police Department, the the, the Prince of Oakland Public Schools, my mother, my therapist. And I get to AA and you know, that feeling you were talking about, imagine that feeling, but you're 10 years younger than 
anyone at the young people's meeting. Yeah. I was 15 and I went to the Monday night young people's meeting in Oakland and, and everybody was 25 and, oh, and older. But you, but you heard some stories, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, great. I mean, you can definitely, <laughs> if you don't get sober in AA at that age, it can be really bad because you've learned a lot of tr- tools lot, of the trade. You're like, lot. I could try that. <laughs> yeah. Where's that in corner you're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> it's literally right outside. <laughs> so I went in and like asked for help. I, yeah. I remember that, you know, I, I, I actually said, I, I don't know what to do. I keep, I keep quitting and starting the next day and I just, I need help. And then I got up and I walked out of the room, you know, which is a very alcoholic way to ask sure. for help. Yeah. It's like, I need angrily, help. Angrily, angrily. And fuck yourself. And I'll be out in the hallway if yeah. anybody, but somebody followed me outside and he like put his arms around me, this guy pigeon that I'm still sort of in touch with. Yeah. And he just said, it's going to be okay. I mean, yeah. by the way, this is not high-level advice giving. No, but it, but in that moment, when you're that fucking lost and raw, it's all you need. Yeah. And, a, and he was an adult. Yeah. And I go, wow, I just broke. I don't know I, if I broke or if it just, I broke enough to go back into the meeting that night. But that was where I started, like, picking together days. <laughs> See, like, because I'm so fucking wired for AA, just you telling that story, I'm, like, tearing up now. Well, it was a it was a moment. It's going to it be okay. And I'm like, oh, my God, the hand of AA reached out. Well, it's, and, it's interesting because you know well that the reason that guy followed me outside, yeah, I'm sure he was cared about me. But he, yeah, was but also, he wanted to stay sober. He was there to help himself yeah. because somebody had come outside and told him it was going to be okay yeah. 18 months before that. Right. And then I started Amazing. this process. Like that was nineteen, that was December ish, December twenty fourth, nineteen ninety four. So it was a long time ago. And, yeah, I and, mean, look, I just had twenty. What I got? I'm, I have twenty four years. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, it's long. You know, when I was young, when I was twenty and twenty five, and so I you was, got like thirty years. Yeah, and, and as I've gotten older. I used to be very proud. Yeah. You know, I go, yeah, I'm 25 and I've got 10 years sober. Like yeah. it was like this big badge of identity. Right, right. Now that I'm 44 and I have t- 30 years sober, yeah. I'm like, it's embarrassing. I feel embarrassed. You know? I like, Couldn't handle it, huh? <laughs> and then people go, what were you doing? And I know what they want me to say, which yeah. is heroin. Yeah. And that's not the answer. Nah. I just go, kid, kid, kid it's stuff. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's become... An but I don't. Th- I don't think people really understand the compulsion. Like it, it doesn't matter what you did or right. what the the depth of the bottom is. I mean, if you know, you know. And it was fortunate that you know either people around you or you yourself knew that early because who the fuck would? Who knows what would have happened? Oh, I mean, I don't know what would have happened, but I know what happened to the people that walked the other way up the street. They're all dead. They're not all dead, but some of them are. Dead. Yeah. Some of them are dead, and some of them went to prison, and, yeah. s- and some of them are fine. Yeah. It's this, uh, you Fuck know. Them. You, <laughs> you know, there was this kid I remember we used to all get high with yeah. named Terry. Yeah. And um, this was the type of kids that I would get high with. Yeah. Terry, we, we, one day we had a big party at his house, and then he told us goodnight. We all left. Yeah. And he was leaving town, and we broke back into his house and, like, went and stole his weed plants and, like, sure. trashed his house. And then Terry stopped hanging out with us. Yeah. And we were all mystified by it. We're yeah. like, fucking Terry's a square now. Like, yeah. for years, the mythology about Terry was right. that he was just like a total dork loser yeah. who couldn't handle the life that we were, you know. Yeah. And Terry is a veterinarian and doing great. And, like, <laughs> the people that were calling him a loser, like, some of them had heart attacks from doing too much coke at, like, 35. And you 35. broke into his fucking house. Hey, we broke into his house. But it, it was just like, that's, <laughs> hey, that's, that's part of the system here. We, <laughs> once in a while, somebody's going to break into your house. Yeah, and you're going to know him. <laughs> 
So, okay, so that lays the groundwork for your spiritual and, and sort of psychological recovery. But then it seems like in the book you move into the rave culture as your actual cultural identity initially. Well, that was the thing. It's like I'm, I'm, though I'm sober, yeah. though I'm like I am getting really touched and turned on by the 12 steps yeah. and this new life, I'm still 15. Yeah. And like I, I, I come from this like lifestyle of people that break into Terry's house, sure. you know, and it was a terrible, it was a terrible like – there was no social life, you know? I remember yeah. I got so... Spiritually bankrupt, uh, pseudo-gangster living. Exactly. Yeah. A white boy who yeah. thinks he's not white boy. Yeah. Kind of... Yeah. The wor- I would say the worst demographic... <laughs> in the world. In the universe. The most annoying, displaced, and Jew on top of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We start with a baseline of genetic annoyingness, <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah. then we move into cultural annoyingness. Yeah. Um, and I want like I got sober December 25th and you know, I remember Christmas. like six days later, it's new year's, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I'm like 15 years old, it's new year's and I got invited to a, a party and yeah. nobody invited us to parties back then. Yeah. This was not, we had, our reputation preceded us. Don't invite you and your crew, to your par- me and my crew. And we got invited <laughs> yeah. to this party yeah. Yeah. and I, and I knew if I went to the party, I was done for. There's right. no chance that I'm going to You weren't going to use? I was definitely going to use. Yeah. And I had this other option, which is to go to this AA dance at the, I don't know where, the, some rotary club in sure. the suburbs. And I I didn't know what to do. It's like, yeah. I, 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 I'm 15. I want to go to a party. I mean, there's nothing more seductive than a New Year's party for a 15-year-old. And there's nothing less seductive than a rotary club on New Year's Eve. And I went to the fucking Rotary Club. Had a boy. And I found this girl named Rose, who I, I still kind of know. Yeah. And I remember she was the only person under like 50 at this thing. <laughs> and we yeah. sat under like a, a, a fluorescent lamp outside and smoked Newports together and, and, Newports. and discussed what the fuck See, that happened to our lives. you still a little black, didn't you? <laughs> There's a little bit of it in me. <laughs> and at 12.01, my mom came yeah. and picked me up and drove me back home. And that was my first New Year's. And, and. At the time, it was like, this was the worst New Year's I've ever had in my life. And in retrospect, once again, in hindsight, I go, wow, that was, that was, the, that was the most important New Year's of my life. It was the t- To make the choice. To make that yeah. kind of commitment. Yeah. But like six months later, I'm, you know, I'm still, I'm 16 now, and I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah. Like, who what, am I? Who am I? What do I do? And yeah. I saw this flyer uh, on a telephone pole. I remember I'd seen a 2020 news, like an alarmist kind of news um, report on, on raves, you know, the, the new yeah. drug-addled warehouse parties happening <laughs> yeah. near your children now. Yeah. And I go, I'm doing it. Yeah, yeah. And I bought a $20 ticket to this rave called Cyberfest. That was when MDMA was the thing, right? It, it, or, was, it was the thing. Yeah. It was, it, it, there, in fact, I'm not sure there's ever been a scene that's more directly connected to one drug than, than the raves. Yeah. It was weird if you didn't do specifically MDMA. Yeah. And, uh, and that was, I didn't do specifically MDMA. I, um, I bought a ticket to this party. I remember I went to an NA meeting across the street from the Henry J. Kaiser convention center where the rave was happening. Yeah. yeah. And I told all these like middle-aged, uh, drug addicts, like, <laughs> you know, the freedoms of sobriety have allowed me to go to the psychedelic rave across the street. And they were just like, what the fuck? Who are you? What are you, <laughs> what are you talking, talking about? about? And I walked across the street, I got in line and I remember I had this bottle of, um, I used to wear uh, Escape by Calvin Klein. Wow. So Newport's and Escape by yeah, Calvin Klein. Really you, can, you get a picture. It. You get a picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I remember I had this bag because I, no, I didn't know what to expect in this rave. I had like packed like I was going camping. And I remember <laughs> I grabbed, I had the bottle of Escape and I remember I stuffed it into a sock yeah. in case I had to like, you know, blackjack defend somebody. Yourself? Yeah, yeah sure. defend my, this is like the, my modus operandi. Because what like, is a rave? Yeah, yeah, who knows? I might it's have to. be open warfare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 
so that's the kind of mind I had yeah. in the line. Yeah. The line was like, I just, I might have to use this potpourri yeah. scented blackjack to like knock somebody unconscious and make an escape. Yeah. You know how we sure. live. Yeah, man. We'll keep it real, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I walk into this party and I walked into this warehouse <laughs> yeah. and I heard this music and I just, dum, dum, dum. listen, I know it's corny. No, it's all right. But it's like, it, I don't know what happened, but my mind like just fractalated. I was just really? like immediately like looking around like, like I was overwhelmed by everything that was happening. You know, if I yeah. if, if I if I looked specifically, I saw the weirdest looking people I'd ever seen in my life. Sure. And if I widened my my aperture, I saw this like throbbing mass of thousands Vibration. of people and yeah. this music. And I put the bag down with the escape uh, yeah, blackjack. Sure. I never saw the bag. The bag was gone, immediately <laughs> gone. And I just started like dancing around the room. I like pirouetting, doing leaps in the air. And like, sure. by the way, as a white person with an identity crisis, yeah. um, the, one of the places where you really betray yourself yeah. and, bet and show the world that you truly are white is yeah. when it comes to dancing. Sure, of course. Uh, yeah. I didn't know dancing. I didn't know how to dance. And so what I would do, uh, like what I would do in Oakland Public Schools is yeah. just like you butt grab, booty grab, slow dance kind of thing sure. that I talk about in the book. Like it was the slow dance where you would try to grab your partner's butt and she yeah. would grab your, your hand. And to make, some old rock song? No, no, no. To some 1990s, very R &B. suggestive R&B yeah, song. Right. Like, yeah. like Silk yeah. or uh, Candyman's Knockin' the Boots. Do you know, are you familiar? No, <laughs> no but I, I get it. Spalding Gray did a great uh, monologue about it. Oh, he did? But, no, he didn't. But... Um, <laughs> I never danced. I never moved. I just tried to look cool. That was like, that was the thing. Sure, but here you are with a bunch of freaks. I'm fucking doing, I'm doing Barishnikov across wow. the floor at the, at the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center. No one bothered Center. you. No one judged you. There was no judgment at these parties. See, that's why you got there and you're like, this is who I am now. A hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> because I had come from this world where like, my yeah. friends were a threat. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I got. So guarded, defensive. I got physically beaten up by yeah. my best friend's dozens of times great friends oh terrible never. i remember once this guy my friend but never once you thought like maybe not, not be friends anymore you know i was so desperate yeah. you know and mm -hmm. like i was so i was so before when i found those kids and they welcomed me behind the portables at the yeah. back of the school yeah. no one had ever welcomed me before i was this so white you're gonna take the hit i t literally take the hit yeah. i remember once this dude was one of my friends was like beating up this kid that had come to hang out with us right and i ran over like and i go i go come on jay don't hit him, man. Leave him alone. And yeah. I like took his shoulder, like, come on, leave him alone. And my friend, yeah. who I'm over there intervening on, turns around, punches me in the face. Yeah. And I grab my eye and I run off and I start crying. I That always happened to me when I got beat You're up. Crying? I always started crying. It was the worst. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> Even now? I haven't been beaten up in a long time, so I don't know. But maybe, because I'd get so angry that I would start physically crying. I cry uh, just in verbal confrontations. Yeah? Sure. I'd be closer to, but yes, I, I was that too. My emotions were so bubbling. Yeah. yeah. So I run off with my eye, you know, half shut and black, and Jay comes over. He's drunk, and he goes, he comes to apologize. He's like, I'm so sorry I hit you. I really apologize. I go, yeah, man, it was really fucked up. Why'd you do that? And he fucking beat me up again. He beat me up during the apology. Yeah. So these are the people that I was surrounded by. So the rave was a relief. I get there. I'm pirouetting, and this gay couple comes up yeah. to me on either side of me, and they put their arm around my waist, and they lift me in the air, and they go, you dance beautifully. Oh my and they like leave, they like, <laughs> yeah. they drop me to the ground yeah. and, and, and I'm in the air and I'm going, I'm going, who the fuck are these, who the fuck are these gay motherfuckers touching all on me? Yeah. Like, who the fuck do they, who the fuck they think they are? <laughs> and they put me down, I'm going to tell them who I am. 
and they put me down and I grabbed both of them and I pulled them close to me and I kissed them on the cheek and I go, you dance beautifully too. And like, I was like, all of a sudden I was a new man. I was a different, I was born a different again. Being. I was born again. Wow. Almost, almost literally. Yeah. No, it feels that way. And I can, I can picture that. Well, the thing about raves is that you, you when you picture a rave, you picture like a guy with a, an adult with a like top hat. And candy, well, just goofy shit, goofy shit, like a goofy a, a trippy stuffed, shit, a yeah, stuffed animal sure. and glitter on his face yeah, and yeah, barrettes. Yeah. And I realize now, again in hindsight, like what that was was my real childhood was so violent and so uh, just not childhood that when I got to raves, you know, I, I was able to sort of recreate this artificial childhood, embrace the innocence. Yeah, that's exactly exactly what because it was. then you go into your actual. In, you do do a chapter on your actual parents, yeah, but it's different than the book that you wrote before, because you are coming at it from an older point of view. Yeah, and in a, and in a historical point of view too. I mean, like each of the segments, each of the essays yeah. are are one part history and one part memoir. Sure, and um, and 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 the seg the the segments about my parents are, of course, the ones about Judaism and deafness, which are two of the worlds that are they're n they're not. But the deafness thing, like, it seems like there was a bit of focus on the fact of, you know, how embarrassing. Oh, it was so embarrassing. It was to be the child of deaf people well, out in the world. It was a it was a raw nerve, and it was one of the raw. It was part of the of the cocktail that allowed the invitation to the back of the portables to feel so relieving. Yeah, is that I felt so different. You know, my yeah. my dad was this like born again Hasidic Jew. My mother is this like deaf activist with a funny voice. You know, and like I was very proud of my mother. I always have been, mm. and very I was very aware that like of gratitude and and pride in having a deaf mother. But simultaneously, I it was embarrassing when she would call my name across the schoolyard in that voice that sounds deaf. And yeah. I, and I, and, and, and that was conflicting, uh, you know, to, to be simultaneously proud and also ashamed of the same person for the same reasons was like, yeah, it's it, tricky, huh? It was really tricky. Everything about having deaf parents is tricky because they're your, they're your guardian and they're your teacher and they're your leader. They're your parent, but some, you're also their uh, administrative assistant and you're also People look at you before they look at your parent. You know, you yeah. walk up. We would people would 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 interface with my mother through me, or sometimes instead of my mother. Yeah, they would. I remember we pulled up. We were going camping once, and the ranger leans. My mother's driving the yeah. car. She yeah. leans across my mom to hand me the pamphlet and go, "Now, can your mother read?" And it's like she's driving a car. Like she's deaf, not stupid. Like yeah. what do you? Well, that's, yeah. And then as I started to get into trouble, I would be the interpreter because they hadn't uh, made it illegal to not have interpreters for deaf people, I would be the interpreter in the meeting about, about my you. behavioral issues for my mother. I would be translating, and you have to do kind of a subtle dance, yeah. because you can't just do a, a faithful tran translation, right, right. or you'll get in tons of trouble. What he's trying to say, yeah, but, but he's not quite correct. Yeah, but you also, I would do that. You yeah. also can't go, your son's a great guy, we love him, because right, you're like, oh, then why'd you call me in today? Sure. So you'd have to do this sort of subtle dance of so, like, a troubled but intriguing young fellow. Yeah, right, like, <laughs> right, right. We want him out. They're thinking about a different yeah. path for me. <laughs> <laughs> they think I'm a a brilliant challenge, is yeah, what they're saying. Yeah, they're, that I'm too unique. Yeah, fucking asshole. Is that I saw the words "fucking asshole" being mouthed. So that was sort of the 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 the, the ground so, that I was born into. Well, so how much of this book is is was did you find uh, closure 
in writing this stuff around this stuff or had you already processed most of this stuff? Because usually the act of writing kind of gives you a, 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 a fullness to the closure. I, I, that's for sure. I, and, and I don't know. I, I, I think that my biggest feeling of all of this was the first thing we talked about is like looking back at these like disparate kind of worlds that had created the kind of my, my meanness and going, oh man, they were interconnected yeah. through me. I'm I'm the connective tissue, and they do fit together. In the even though they don't necessarily all feel like they're of a kind, they do fit together because they create like the story of who I am. Um, and also, I realize like how grateful I am for the time before the internet when culture would kind of you would stumble into culture through accidental means oh yeah you the know? best yeah and you would just go my destiny was just literally the people i met or the weird choices i made yeah rather than the app that i opened and culture was sort of delivered to me through like punched a, into your face like a brazil uh feeding tube you know you open yeah. a thing like this is culture yeah uh it was just this accident well that well that's interesting about also about the last two chapters where it's judaism and then comedy but <laughs> the Judaism thing, like all the stuff you're talking about was written before, you know, October 7th, right? Yeah. Obviously. And, you know, you run pretty deep with the Jew stuff and it's sort of, you're reckoning with, you know, this Hasidic presence in your life. Yeah. And then you kind of do a, a, a kind of, uh, quick, uh, primer on the history of Jews I do, yeah. a, I do a history of the first 6,000 years of Jewish history in six pages, I think. But now, how much of this stuff was did you have to actually research in order to, uh, to manifest this idea? It depends on— What the, was your education? Depends on the chapter. Each of these worlds is a world that I know intimately I'm talking well. about the Jews. And Jews specifically, I have a degree in Jewish history, and that was, I would say, the thing that I, I kind of knew most of this really? stuff going into it. Yeah. I was at some point, speaking of things that could have gone in a different direction, at some point the plan was to become an academic, a Jewish studies academic. Your brother's a rabbi? My brother is a rabbi. I yeah. met him, the rabbi. He's a great guy. Great guy. He And he helped. I would send him everything uh, because I know history, but I don't know um, theology as much, obviously, as him. And so I would, for the spiritual concepts that, we, that I kind of try to explain in the book, he would be my resource. And there was a bunch of people that helped me. But a lot of the Jewish history stuff, yeah, I, I, that's what I studied in college. And that's what I thought my destiny was bringing me to until I found an open mic. I just, I thought that like it was great, kind of, a great understanding uh, and portrait of Hasidim because, you know, I've gotten into trouble with them because I make fun of them. And yeah. I think they're like, you know, Polish hillbillies. Oh, same here. And, they, and, I, they, and then there's one line in the book where you're like, looked like the type of person that only had sex with his wife and hookers. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's that too. Well, that's, you know, that's allowed. I know, but that's like, that was my one correction in the book. Oh, <laughs> that I'm was like, your one note. <laughs> that guy definitely didn't just have sex with his wife. I, I used would, to see them cruising well, hookers all the time. Yeah, but uh, come on. It doesn't not, mean it's, all of them. It, yeah. yeah, it's not that Hasidic Jews go to hookers. It means some Hasidic Jews have gone to hookers. Sure, yes. Frequently. I, mean, I used to see them all the time in New York. No, I, but, I, I remember my friend uh, telling me he went to a, he was a gay guy and he went to a bathhouse one yeah. night and he said these two Hasidic, like very nervous looking Hasidic boys came up to him and they were yeah. like, he was fucking some guy and they're staring yeah. and he's, and he look, he turns and he goes, did you want to, it sounds so fun to be yeah. gay. He's like, yeah. did you want to jump in here? Yeah. And they go, no, no, we just look. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's, I think that's in the uh, Hasidic tales of Martin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Martin Buber. Martin Buber did discuss that. <laughs> <laughs> he knew all the the bathhouses of no, New no, York City. No, no, we just look. No, no, we just look. That's the title of the Hasidic tale, the parable. Well, my, my reckoning with the Hasidic world is, you know, I mean, on the one hand, I'm not unaware of why you make fun of them and, and, the, hypo- and the difficulties that people have with them. Sure. I mean, they're, they're, they're difficult. Well, they're, I, I interviewed, you know, Luzer Tversky? Of course. Yeah. yeah. You know, I interviewed him. And that's a rough story. I don't even know it, where it is, he is right now. It is a rough story. Do you know story. where he is right now? I think he's in an RV. He goes to Burning Man. That's one of the segments in the, in the book. Well, that's the other the one. Yeah, sure. That goes, rave to Burning, Burning Man makes now, sense. Now, that one does click together. But, uh, yes. Spiritually, I can understand that. Yeah, but loser still in the trailer. I think so. Last time I saw, last time I saw him was actually at Burning Man. So you never know. He, who knows where he is? I'll text him when we're done. Okay, I'll, I'll check in. But yeah, yeah I mean, I get check it. on his well being. I get it. Like my my family. Oh, here's a here's a and and and, and by the way, yeah, Hasidic people aren't all of a kind. I know. Yeah, I and I got unlucky. There's a the best story that I can tell about that yeah. is that my brother was in school at Hebrew U and this like Hasidic emissary came to the school. He yeah. was like a guy that did like cultural outreach. He was in Jerusalem? In Jerusalem. Yeah. He was a guy that did like cultural outreach to non-Hasidic people. And he's just there to like, you know, one of these college programs where they go, where are the Hasidic people? Yeah. And this is what we're like. And he's like, oh, it's a beautiful culture. And we dance and we sing songs to the Lord. And my brother's in the back of the room like fuming. And he goes, and he finally, he just can't take it anymore. And he goes, I got, I'm sorry, I just got to stop you. This is bullshit. He's like, I grew up in a Hasidic neighborhood. Uh, and, and by the way, my grew up was every yeah. summer our summer vacation with your were dad spent, in new york it, with my dad in new york yeah. so all year long we were secular kids in oakland public schools yeah and in three months a year we'd fly back home to the old country put on some garb and become extras <laughs> yeah. on fiddler on the roof yeah. right so yeah. he goes this is bullshit like they judged us they called us goy they they treated us cruelly there was no dancing there was no singing yeah. all i remember is judgment and the hasidic emissary guy goes very softly he's like can i ask um what sex of Hasidic Judaism, your family comes from? And he's like, Satmar and Square, why? And the guy goes, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> the bad one. Ooh, I don't know how to tell you the this. The bad tribe, yeah. I don't know how to tell you this, but you just named two of the most severe, sometimes judgmental, sometimes cruel sects of Hasidic Judaism that there are. And, and, it, and it, so that was just dumb luck. It was right, just dumb right, luck that right. we landed there. But, but I also... I also, I, so I understand from the outside looking at the Hasidic community, specifically some of the more severe ones, why it looks like, you know, this is, you're, you're alienating yourself from the society around yeah, you. You're right. trying to create this like Wakanda yeah. uh, inside of New York City. And, you, you know, you take over school boards and, and, you, and, and, and not a very colorful Wakanda. No, no. I would say it's a much more uh, white. Kind of uh, muted. A very <laughs> muted Wakanda <laughs> with less technology. Yeah. Actually, they say, how do you tell the difference between an Amish guy and a Hasid is the Hasid it as a cell phone but anyway yeah i understand and i w- part of the, what i wanted to give over in the book is that when you see those people and you see i, I guess the alienating space between hasidic society yeah. and the rest of society yeah you have to understand why they are that way they're not that way because they're unfriendly they are they, they are that way because a gr- the greatest tragedy that ever befell our people occurred, you know, a hundred years ago. And then the the response to that tragedy for some sects of Hasidic Judaism after the Holocaust was, okay, the world is filled with murderous uh, evil and we have to build a wall around ourselves and say, fuck the world 
and just let's keep the shards of whatever's left of our society intact. And so they built this wall that at first made a lot of sense, but, you know, generation after generation, the wall has become kind of the de facto way that they interact with the world. And it's difficult for people who are not the wolves of Germany, who are just like Mark Maron walking down the street. Yeah. So I, I simultaneously empathize with people that have that have a hard time understanding Hasidic society and really empathize with my my family, who's inside of the wall, going, we're just trying to stay together. Even if it's an, even if it's a paranoid desire, it's a paranoia that's born out of a, a, an extremely justifiable reason. And are you are you uh, religious? You know, I. Uh, you do the Sabbath. I do do Shabbat dinners with my family. Sure. Um, and then I'll watch a movie after. I don't consider myself particularly religious, but I guess compared to most Jews I know, as I... You hang on to a few traditions. Yeah, I say like, I'm, I had a simultaneously much, much, much more Jewish uh, upbringing than any of my Jewish friends and much, much less Jewish upbringing than any of my Jewish friends. I never went to camp. I didn't have a year-round Jewish So you didn't, you're not middle-class secular Jews, but you were fucking religious. But I had like a hyper-constant, I was like gavaged. I was like uh, waterboarded Judaism sure. for no, six weeks it, a yeah. year. And somehow that experience, even though it was extremely traumatic, I mean, you know, we used to play dodgeball in in Seagate with the uh, the Hasidic Jews versus the ultra-Orthodox Jews. And we were like the, the goys. Like, yeah. it was like, yeah. you know. It, wow. Wow. So, yeah, it was a weird world. I mean, I, when I, this is a fun story. When I, I didn't know Hebrew. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I'm like cosplaying as a Hasidic Jew and I don't literally know the Hebrew alphabet. These people speak Yiddish as a first language. Yeah. Literally, I have cousins with Eastern European accents yeah. who are third generation American. Right. Their parents don't have Eastern European accents because they were the first generation. So they tried to like blend in. Right. Then they had kids and they sent them only to Yiddish speaking schools. So my young cousins sound like c- characters in Dr. Zhivago and my uncle will sound like a New Yorker. Right. Uh, interesting. So this yeah. is the universe that I'm born into, but I don't even know Hebrew and it's yeah. Coming up on my bar mitzvah, yeah, and uh, the the local rabbi, uh, Rabbi Meisels was his name, saw that I was struggling. He he saw I had the English prayer book. This yeah. is this is a synagogue where having an English prayer book is like a scarlet letter. Sure, uh, and he goes to my father. Um, give, why don't you let him come over to my house on Wednesday afternoons? I'll take him and I'll teach him Hebrew. And by the way, this is like early 90s, yeah. uh, late 80s, early 90s. So you could ask for some alone time with a child and they'd be handed over, no questions asked. Yeah. Right? So that's what happened. I go to his house and I start like drilling um, the, the alphabet, yeah. the, the alphabet. And yeah. this is like a Talmudic scholar teaching me the alphabet. It's like yeah. Alan Turing trying to teach you your times tables, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm struggling. I can't get, I don't have an affinity for language. And, um, I guess sign language notwithstanding and uh, and I'm struggling and I can't get it I'm j- and I'm getting so frustrated because it's getting closer to my bar mitzvah and he looks at me with compassion he goes ah oh, don't worry hold on he goes Shmuli Shmuli come in and he calls his oldest son Shmuli into the room and he goes say the uh, say the English alphabet and this kid's like 14 15 years old and he goes oh no and he goes um A B D G and the rabbi slaps me on the back. He goes, ha, 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 see, he is stupid in English. You are stupid in Hebrew. Everybody's stupid. <laughs> Did that help? Well, it was a beautiful and compassionate <laughs> thing for this man to do, humiliate his oldest son so that I could t- learn to love, to love my education. Did you ever get a handle on the Hebrew? I did not. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I've done multiple ulpons. I mean, I can, I can say no tomatoes on my falafel, please. Sure. That's as far as I've sure. gotten. My multiple bar- what? What? You've done multiple what? 
Oh, ulpans, uh, language, Hebrew language speaking oh, okay, intensives, okay, and okay, I still, oh, okay. I still basically comes down to please no tomatoes on my falafel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got through the the reading. I can read Hebrew, but I can't translate. I can barely. So now, what do you do? Like, look, man, I don't talk about this at all because it is just, and I'm trying to wrap my brain around it as a public person. And I, on stage now, I've begun to address it. But what are you doing publicly about Israel? Hmm. I'm really glad you brought that up. Are you or no? You know, I, I'm not because I can't. You're going to be used one way or the other. I saw. Yes, I'll, I'll say this. I saw an interview the other day. Yeah, with somebody, uh, and this this it, uh, it was an Israeli talk show. Yeah, and they were asking this person who was a very outspoken advocate for Israel. Um, you're the people back in America in Hollywood. Yeah, are they scared to show their support for Israel, or do they hate Israel? And, and then they answered the question and the interview continued. And I watched that and I go, what a false dichotomy. Right. Like there's a third option, which is deeply conflicted. Right. It's like I feel like the tragedy in every direction. Right. And I don't feel comfortable speaking up about anything because it's so tragic in every direction. And that's what I feel. I feel a deep, deep conflictedness and a, um, a, and a deep pain. Well, yeah, but the, but the conflict, what I've been saying on stage is essentially like, look, you know, you know, as a Jew, you're going to get that. You know, where do you stand or what do you feel? And I say, well, if I say I believe that, uh, you know, Israel has a right to exist and should be defended however necessary, then people can say, you fucking Zionist, colonialist, fascist, fuck, you genocider. Yeah. And if you say, well, I believe the Palestinians are being mass murdered. By Jews, you by Israelis. You fucking capo, sellout piece of shit. Well, no, but then Terrorist it's sort of like, you know, or you're anti-Semite. Yeah. But if you say, how about a, we we have a ceasefire and begin a dialogue to to move towards, you know, some peaceful solution to this, then people are like, shut the fuck up, yeah. you naive idiot. Pick a side. There are no good things to say. I mean, the closest to a good thing to say I've heard this whole time is Yuval Harari uh, said that it's possible to be both a victim and a perpetrator at the same time. And that I think is, that is, this doesn't refer to the innocent people that are suffering and dying yeah. in Gaza and right. that suffered and died in, in Israel. Yeah. But that, that everyone, every actor, every major actor in this drama is simultaneously a perpetrator and a victim. And they have been given only terrible choices and they've chosen over and over again the most terrible choice available. And I've been thinking a lot about this, um, that what really is happening, as far as I can tell, and by the way, a big part of this is how far down the algorithms people are getting so that you're going deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, I posted this thing about this roundtable I did on called Standing Up to Anti-Semitism that, uh, that actually I won an Emmy for recently, um, which I'm excited about. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, I posted, we got nominated for an yeah. Emmy, Standing Up to Anti-Semitism. And I had some people in the comments going, I don't know how I feel about this. You know, we're not talking, that's not the topic right now. And, you know, kind of, yeah. I didn't even, all I said, I did this thing. And it was before. Well, we taped it like, it was about Kanye. Yeah. You know? I mean, sure. it, it wasn't about, it It was it was taped a, two years ago. And yeah, it was yeah. about, now I get that there's an idea, you shouldn't even have a discussion about anti-Semitism without bringing up Palestine. But I don't, I, that's that's not a fair it's not thing. True. It's not It's not fair. Yeah. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about this idea that, like, what people seem to be trying to do and what they've seemed to be trying to do for the last hundred years is figure out who started it and who's at fault. 
And I don't think that that really will help any. I don't think that gets, it doesn't matter. If Israel is a genocidal, colonialist, uh, racist, imperialist state, and that is true, and they started everything, and it's all their fault, what happens next? There's still 8 million Israelis. If the Palestinians are voting in terror organizations and are obsessed with hate and will never accept anything but a full white, you know, end of Israel, so what? There's still, you know, 5 million Palestinians. Yeah. It doesn't change any reality, which is that there are suffering people yeah. in Palestine and that there are living people in Israel. Sure. And I don't know what the solution is. And it feels like, you know, when I was in college 20 years ago, I was forced to write an essay on the sol- the solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it was such a absurd assignment that I started like, I purposely wrote this absurd essay about a tunnel system that was yeah. operated by the UN. I was doing it on purpose in order- As a satire? As a bit of a satire. Yeah. That was 20 years ago. And it, it seemed impossible then. And it well, see, seemed- but it's impossible to talk about it. Scholars can't wrap their brains around it. And, and you cannot have even, you know, and, I'm, and I don't know anything. And you know more than me, but you and we had a relatively nuanced discussion about it. But that is not the cultural dialogue. Right. So you're going to trip yourself up one way or another and be used as an example of something if you have any profile whatsoever. And ultimately, your voice, they say, use your voice. It's like, it's not going to fucking matter what I say. Oh, that's a hundred percent true. This <laughs> this idea this idea that posting equals advoca- equals activism. Yeah. I mean, I I get I get the argument, but I also feel yeah, I feel trapped by what you're saying that it's just poison on every in every direction, and it's like my primary feeling of. Uh, this whole conflict is one of extreme heartbreak, disappointment in the the place that I uh, that I lo- that I do love. Yeah, uh, like deep heartrending uh, grief yeah. about uh, what happened there to the people that I love. My family is there. My family are hiding in bomb shelters during October seventh, and 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 real guilt about the the subjugation uh, uh, and the kind of endless misery of the Palestinian people. I don't. I obviously don't know the answers, and the idea that I should post to my 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 favorite soccer team in geopolitical tragedy does feel it feels obscene i mean i i hope this isn't doesn't sound like a cop-out but you know i was saying like a friend of mine said well i feel like the people that aren't posting a a, a billion things about this are the people that are thinking deeply about it the people that are thinking uh in 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 a in a reflective and conflicted way and that's how i feel i feel deeply conflicted and i really hope that that there's peace and i don't necessarily feel optimistic Great. So this should fix it. <laughs> Our conversation? Yeah. I mean, the, the really heartbreaking thing about the conflict is that, is, like I said, it felt hopeless 20 years ago. And I feel like we're, we're 40 years behind where we were 20 years ago. Yeah. It feels like things are moving backwards, not forwards. I don't see how this ends. I mean, there will be a ceasefire eventually. And the, the conflict will end eventually. It will turn into something else. That, that is for sure. Yeah. But I don't know what hope there is. You know, I, I, I know that people in the in the pro-Palestinian universe are now more calling for a one-state solution uh, where everybody is just a citizen of, of, the, of the region, yeah. Jewish and non-Jewish. Yeah. Uh, that feels incredibly naive given the, the unfathomable animosity that's occurring between the two people now. So what does the future hold? I, I mean, listen, I'm not Israeli and I don't, I don't sp- speak for Israel, yeah. neither do you. And I, and I resent the implication, I'm sure you do too, that by virtue of your 
your birth or your faith, your Jewishness, you are you are and must be a mouthpiece either for or against I the can't state stand of Israel. It. I'm not a citizen. Impl- that you're implicated. Right. That's the word they use. Yeah. As an American Jew, you're implicated in this conflict. I'm like, no, I'm not. Right. And they, and in both directions. Yeah. You ought to be also implicated in order to say, you know, uh, Am Yisrael Chai forever. I I don't feel comfortable moving in any direction other than uh here, here's what I, I will say about the conflict, and this has been a big um, realization that I have had. I feel like to the Jews of the world, I feel that if your only relationship to your Jewish identity is Israel-Palestine in either direction, yeah. one of guilt or one of anger at Israel or one of, of defense and fear uh, uh, in support of Israel, yeah. that's an insufficient Jewish identity to carry with you through the world. It's not enough to be angry or fearful or, uh, or, or defensive. That's, yeah. not, that's, that's not healthy. Uh, that if you care at all about Jews or Jewish identity do something more than just be angry at Israel or angry uh, for Israel. Go to a Shabbat service, read a Jewish book, learn some Jewish history that has nothing to do with it. Have a deeper experience of what it means to be uh, yeah. in, in this culture than just being ashamed or or defensive. Or you can also read Moshe's new book. That's true too. Subculture Vulture. And the the final chapter is uh, your born againness in comedy. Yeah, is stand up. Yeah, which is sort of the reason that I was even I have the right to write, write a book in the first place. Sure, and that, and I think that's a it's a great arc, and and I think we you know we don't have to ruin that part because you're still in it. I'm still there. But anyway, so this book is I think it's out now. If it's not out now, I'll tell the people when it's out at the beginning. And uh, good job, buddy. Good talking to you. Oh, nice to talk to you too, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah. See that? We got into it, right? That's some that that's a conversational jam session. Subculture Vulture comes out next Tuesday, January 30th. You can pre-order it now. Alright? Alright. Hey folks, this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here, and when they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Thanks to everyone who sent in a question for the latest Ask Mark Anything episode. It's up right now for Full Marin subscribers, where I answer questions like this one. What is your most memorable experience at the store? Well, there's a couple. I remember when I was a doorman there and Pryor came in and he went on in the original room and he he didn't do well. He bombed, but he went up there with that prior vulnerability. This must have been, I don't know, 
what year would that have been? 86, 87. I don't know where exactly he was at in his life, but he wanted to get up there and work on some stuff. And he had that, that real weird prior vulnerability and he just had a hard time up there and it was a hard thing to watch, but it was important to see. And then, uh, there was a lot of memorable experiences back in the day. <laughs> I remember when Sam Kennison on Easter, must've been Easter 1987. He came out on stage that night on Sunday, wearing a black cap, black sunglasses, black trench coat, black sweatpants, a torn black t-shirt with a black rosary beads around his neck. And he said, how do you like my Easter outfit? <laughs> That's pretty memorable. Like, I remember that. To get all the full Marin bonus episodes, sign up by going to the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF+. Plus. I'm doing a slide thing. I'm doing a slide thing. I'm enjoying the slide thing. Cat Angels everywhere.